Section 15 of the Byzantine Empire. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Mike Botez. The Byzantine Empire. The Rearguard of European Civilization by Edward Ford. Section 15, Part 1. The Great Conquerors. Romanus II left two little sons, Basil, aged seven, and Constantine, who was only two. His wife had besides borne him two daughters, Theophano, now about five, destined to play a great part as Empress of the West, and Anna, born two days before her father's death, afterwards Queen of Russia. The condition of the Empress left the entire administration in the hands of Joseph Bringas, and as he was known to be bitterly jealous of Phocas, a struggle was imminent. Romanus had left it as his dying injunction that Phocas, indisputably the Emperor's ablest general, was not to be deprived of his command, and general feeling in his favour was so strong that Bringas did not dare to openly oppose it. Phocas celebrated a triumph in the capital for his Syrian victories, and after taking a solemn oath of fidelity to his young masters, departed for the frontier. Bringas, determined to overthrow him, endeavoured to enlist in his interest the corps commanders of the army of Asia, especially Johannes Kurkuas, afterwards surnamed Chemchkik, who had been the right hand of his uncle Phocas in the Syrian campaign. Kurkuas's later conduct shows that he was capable of committing any crime under the influence of ambition or disappointment but he showed no present disposition to be disloyal to his uncle. Phocas was saluted emperor by the army in the time-honored fashion and marched for Constantinople. Basil Lecapenos, with his household of 3,000 retainers and slaves, raised a revolt in his favor in the capital. Bringas was forced to take sanctuary and Phocas was crowned as Nicephorus II by the patriarch Polyuctus, August 16, 963. Nicephorus II was above all things a soldier, but he was deeply and rather fanatically religious, and seems to have had a strong hankering after a monastic life. He strengthened his position by marrying Theophano. The marriage can hardly have been more than nominal. Phocas was fifty-two, harsh of countenance, stern and repulsive in manner and bearing. Theophano, about twenty-four, singularly beautiful and winning. The patriarch was not friendly to the emperor, and endeavored to prevent the consummation of the marriage, but without success. He gave trouble also by his narrow-minded ideas on the subject of the sin 
of bloodshed. They were possibly in the same sense justifiable, but seeing that the very existence of the empire would bound up with that of the army, their public expression was pernicious. Nicephorus, failing to obtain adequate support from the clergy, reported by a novel, by which he enacted that all nominations, promotions, and decisions of the clergy were invalid without the consent of the emperor. His financial measures were entirely directed to the war budget. He cut down pensions and grants, and suppressed pageantry in the capital. This, naturally, did not tend to his popularity, but it was justifiable, which cannot be said of his issuing base coins and paying the Senate debts therewith, while the taxes continued to be exacted in the old pure pieces. The action was a bad one in every way. More justifiable was his novel of 964 to protect the peasant proprietors against the large landholders. The situation of the former was evidently becoming steadily worse. During the autumn and winter of 963-64, to 64, Nicephorus was chiefly employed at the capital. John Chemchkik was left in charge of the eastern frontier, and soon showed his ability. When a Saracen army threatened an invasion from Cilicia, he marched boldly against it and drove it back into Syria by a victory at Adana, so complete that the demoralized Muslims spoke of the field as the hill of blood. In 964, Nicephorus himself took over the command. His first attempt on Tarsus was repulsed but he besieged and took Adana and Mopsuestia, and recaptured Anazarbus, which had fallen back into Muslim hands in the previous year. In 965, he again blockaded Tarsus, and after a long siege, forced it into surrender. The whole Mohammedan population was permitted to depart, with immediate personal property only, the measure was harsh but necessary. The inhabitants were chiefly raiders and slave traders. The city was repeopled by Christian colonists, largely Armenians. In the same year, an expedition under the patrician Nikitas regained Cyprus, after a Saracen occupation of 77 years. Meanwhile, in Europe, Affairs on the northern frontier needed the imperial presence. Bulgaria was fast falling to decay. In 963, it had broken into two kingdoms, Sheshman of Ternova, making himself independent in the west. In 967, another Magyar raid slipped through into Thrace. It was easily repelled but Nicephorus now informed the unfortunate Tsar Peter that, as he could not protect the empire, the subsidy would be discontinued. He advanced against Bulgaria, but unaccountably retired 
without accomplishing anything. Probably his attention was diverted to the West, where the great emperor Otto I was very active. Otto invaded the imperial territories, assisted by Pandulf of Beneventum, but he gained no success of importance. Pandulf was taken prisoner. He himself was repulsed before Bari. The very weak forces of the theme of Italy were sufficient to check him. An expedition which Nicephorus sent against Sicily in 967 under the patrician Nikitas was defeated by the forces of the Fatimid Caliph Moez. This was the one military disaster of his reign. In the capital, however, he was very unpopular. Things reached such a pass that he was pelted in the streets, and a woman caught in the act of throwing a stone was burnt alive, a savage piece of cruelty, especially when we considered that punishments were steadily tending to become milder. Nicephorus fortified the palatial enclosure, and never moved out except with a strong guard. It was about this time that Lutprand of Cremona made his second visit to Constantinople. His account of things in general, and the emperor in particular, is most unflattering. Nicephorus, having unaccountably failed against Bulgaria, tried a new plan. He sent the patrician Calochires with a subsidy of 1,500 pounds of gold, about 70,000 pounds, to Sviatoslav, son of Igor, king of Russia, a fierce warrior of the most pronounced Viking type. Russia had recovered from the blow dealt in 941. It was far more than a match for the divided and weakened Bulgaria. Kalokiris, once in Russia, proclaimed himself emperor, gave the gold as his own, and persuaded Sviatoslav to conquer Bulgaria and make it base for an attack on Constantinople by land. The question as to what length of shrift he himself was likely to obtain from the king when the latter had taken Constantinople, he seems to have deferred until a more fitting season. Sviatoslav, in 967, advanced against Bulgaria. He established himself at New Preslava, a foundation of his own near Tulcha, on the Danube, and rapidly conquered all the north except Silistria, which he was besieging, when he was suddenly called to Russia by the news that the Pechenegs were attacking Kiev. In the spring of 968, Nicephorus, apparently freed from the Russian danger, returned to the east and burst into Syria, at the head of a splendid army of 80,000 men. Antioch was passed for the moment, while Nicephorus pressed through Syria, ravaging as he went, taking and sacking towns, to the neighborhood of Damascus. Membij, Latakia... Aleppo, Hems were taken. Damascus and Tripoli saved themselves from pillage by a ransom. Having overrun Syria as far as Hermon, 
Nicephorus turned back to besiege Antioch, but winter being at hand, he left only a small force entrenched outside, under Michael Burtzes, with orders to observe the city until spring, and cantoned the main body some distance to the north. He left his eunuch kinsman Petros in command, and returned to Constantinople. Burtzes soon found that the garrison kept bad watch, and decided on a bold attempt to cut the long line of defense. On a dark night, screened by a raging snowstorm, he led a band of 300 chosen soldiers to the foot of the wall, and carried two towers by an audacious escalade. He at once hurried off messengers to focus, but the latter, afraid of his sovereign's anger, delayed to advance. For two days, Burtzes and his gallant band fought for their lives, repelling attack after attack of the aroused and desperate garrison. On the third day, Foca's sense of honor conquered his dread, and he came up in time to save Burtzes and capture the city. His fear was justified. He was dismissed from his command, but so, too, was Burtzes, for winning a city without orders. He swore revenge, and dearly did Nicephorus pay for his Martinetism. Nicephorus did not go east in 969. The affairs of Bulgaria were pressing. The aged Peter passed away in January. Shishman of Ternova at once attempted to seize the sovereignty of the entire kingdom, but was repulsed by Boris, son of Peter, assisted by Nicephorus, who concluded an offensive and defensive alliance with him. But in the summer, Sviatoslav reached New Preslava with a host of 60,000 warriors and set out to conquer Bulgaria. This time there was little resistance. The towns were taken or gained over. Boris, in despair, acknowledged his supremacy. Much of this must be attributed to Nicephorus's bad policy. He had failed to either assist or conquer Bulgaria. The tottering kingdom became the prey of the power which moved first. It was evident that, so far from his pursuing a triumphant career in the east, the next year would see a defensive campaign in Thrace. Meanwhile, his harshness had alienated everyone. Indeed, at this date, he was generally hated. Theophano was private to a plot against him, and in it were enlisted John Chemchkik, the ill-treated Burtzes, and several other distinguished men. The powerful Basil Lecapenos was at least cognizant of the design. As regards Grucuas, ambition forms a sufficiently strong motive for his action. It is possible that he had other private reasons. Burtzes had a grievance strong enough to steel his heart against all pity. Nicephorus had certainly neglected Theophano, and he was suspected of a design of emasculating Basil and Constantine. At midnight of December 10, 11, 
Kurkuas and his companions rowed in a boat to the sea wall of a palatial enclosure, and were hoisted up in baskets by Theophano and her ladies. Joined by such of the conspirators as were already in the palace, they hastened to the chamber of Nicephorus, where he lay peacefully asleep on the floor, wrapped in his cloak. John awoke him with a kick, and as he looked up, the others sprang up on him and stabbed savagely. O oh God, have mercy on me, he cried amid his sufferings. Then one of the murderers cleft his head, and the tragedy ended. With all his faults, he had been a not unworthy occupant of the throne. John showed some contrition for his share in the terrible crime. He distributed his entire private fortune among the poor and endowed a hospital for lepers. He refused to see Theophano, who had fixed her fancy upon his handsome face and exiled her to the Armenian border. Basil Lecapenos, now president of the Senate, undertook the business of removing her, and in her rage and despair she violently assaulted him. John also sacrificed two of his fellow murderers, who had done most of the butcher's work. He conciliated the patriarch by abrogating the anticlerical novel of his predecessor, but when Polyuctus died he showed himself high-handed, in appointing and deposing his successors. The relatives of the dead emperor were involved in his fate. Leo, who had been Curopalates, was exiled to Lesbos, and on escaping and raising revolt was captured with his elder son, Nicephorus. Both were nominally blinded. As a fact, they retained their sight. The apparently terrible sentence was often a very merciful one. Leo's second son, Bardas, general of Chaldea and Colonia, was confined at Amasea, but escaped and raised the standard of revolt, and John had to march against him. John married Theodora, one of the daughters of Constantine Porphyrogenitus. He took care to conconciliate public legitimist opinion by treating his boy colleagues as his equals. He decided to come to terms with Otto the Great, and releasing Pandulf of Beneventum, sent him to open peace negotiations. These were naturally protracted, but successfully concluded, and finally sealed by the marriage of Theophano, the sister of the young emperors, to Otto II, heir and colleague of Otto, at Rome in April 972. John hardly appears to have thought that Svetoslav, now supreme from Novgorod to Hemus, would dare to attack the empire. He was terribly undeceived. In 970, a host of Russians and Bulgarians crossed Hemus, wasting northern Thrace, and stormed Philippopolis, massacring 20,000 of its inhabitants. 
John in Asia could do nothing. The only obstacle to a Russian advance was a small army in Thrace, under the able general Bardas Skleros. John sent an embassy with a haughty order to Sviatoslav to quit the empire. It was dismissed as haughtily, and the Russo-Bulgarian host proceeded down the valley of the Hebrus, past Adrianople, and found Skleros waiting for them before Arkadiopolis. They were totally defeated, and when they regained Bulgaria had lost, by flight, desertion, and battle, 20,000 men. Thrace was saved, but the Russian host, reinforced by Bulgarians and adventurers from all quarters, was in force north of the Balkans. John determined to take the field in person. Skleros was rewarded by the command in Asia. His immediate task was to crush the rebellion of Phocas. John proceeded to the capital, and, besides collecting troops from the Thames, organized an imperial guard of picked men, largely infantry from the Armenian border, which he named the Immortals. A fleet of 300 ships was to enter the Danube and cut off the Russian retreat. John's strategy bespoke a haughty confidence in himself and his army. It was no light thing to deliberately force 100,000 fierce warriors to fight with their backs to the wall, especially when the needs of Asia made his own immediate force much smaller than it would otherwise have been. In the early spring of 971, John concentrated on Adrianople. He had with him the immortal guard and 15,000 infantry and 13,000 cavalry of the Thames, 38,000 men at the utmost, probably considerably less. Despite the severe lesson of Arkadiopolis, the Russians were in a state of overweening security. They appear to have believed that John would not take the field before Easter. Sviatoslav himself was on the Danube, perhaps negotiating with Shishman, while a Russo-Bulgarian army under a chief named Sviatogor, Svangelos, and the traitor Kalokires lay about Great Preslava. Relying on the Easter tide rumor or fiction, they were not holding the passes of Hamus. John was not a man to consult his enemy's convenience, and broke up from Adrianople a fortnight earlier than he had been expected. The infantry of the immortals was at the head of the column to clear the way. The emperor, with his personal guards, followed. Behind him came the mass of the infantry. The cavalry, which could be of little use in the mountains, was in the rear. The passes were unguarded. The army came through with the slightest opposition. Sviatogor and Kalokires were hurriedly concentrating. In front of Preslava, they gave battle to the emperor. They were entirely defeated, and John pushed on to assault the city. 
It was carried by escalade, the garrison of the citadel massacred, and King Boris and his family taken prisoners. Sviatogor, with a part of his army, escaped, but in the two days' battle he had lost 15,000 men. Sviatoslav was advancing to support his lieutenant when the news of Preslava reached him. He learned also that the imperial fleet was in the Danube, and realizing his danger, picked up Sviatogor and retreated on Silistria. There he found his passage across the river blocked by the fleet, and turned like a tiger at bay on John, who, after a brief halt to rest his troops and celebrate Easter, was following from Preslava. Sviatoslav's army now consisted mainly of Russians, sturdy infantry in iron mail, covered from chin to foot with huge shields and wielding heavy axes and spears. But he lacked troops armed with missile weapons, and his only cavalry were lightly equipped raiders. On April 23, the two hosts collided some way south of Silistria, and after a gallant resistance, the heavy Russian columns gave way before the scientific combination of infantry and cavalry attacks, and retreated on the fortress. John followed and entrenched himself outside the town. His great force of cavalry enabled him to blockade it completely, but his army was far too small to attempt a storm. For some three months the siege wore on. The place was well supplied, but at length the great host inside began to exhaust its provisions. The steady blockade never slackened, and Sviatoslav, like Osman at Plevna, resolved to fight his way out. His superiority in numbers gave him a fair chance of escape. On July 23rd, the Russian host moved out for its last effort, and for a time appeared likely to succeed. No doubt there was some difficulty in concentrating the blockading army at the point of danger. The Byzantine lines were broken, and the emperor had to abandon scientific combination and endeavor to bar the onward march of the huge ironclad infantry masses by desperate and repeated cavalry charges, like those by which Napoleon stemmed the tide of disaster at Eilau. After a tremendous struggle, so desperate that men said that St. Theodore appeared to rally the reeling squadrons, the Russians were brought to a stand. The Byzantine infantry came into action. After hours of furious combat, their storm of arrows broke down the solid resistance, shattered the steady squares, and left them at the mercy of the cavalry. Sviatoslav's last hope was gone. He left 15,500 dead on the field and retreated to Silistria. Prisoners were probably few. Sviatoslav, beaten at last, sued for peace, and was granted generous terms. 
he was to march out with arms and personal baggage, and to be supplied for his march to Russia on the condition of surrendering Silistria with the plunder and captives there collected, and of renewing the former treaty with the empire. After the conclusion of the negotiations, he asked for a personal interview with his conqueror. The request was granted, and the two gallant warriors met and conversed by the bank of the Danube. Svetoslav, coming by boat from Silistria, John riding down with his guards from his camp. What passed between them we know not. The simple dress of the Russian appears to have struck the splendid arrayed Byzantine guardsman. The description of his physiognomy would seem to show that already the Scandinavian blood of Rurik was much diluted with that of the Slavs. Sviatoslav was fair-haired and blue-eyed, but snub-nosed. Sviatoslav, on his side, probably wondered, like the Mamelukes when they saw Napoleon, how it came about that the little fair Armeniac with the gay blue eyes and cheerful smile, was so terrible a fighter, and perhaps attributed the mystery to magic. He commenced his homeward march immediately afterwards, after four great battles, a long siege, and the wear and tear of two years, he had still 22,000 warriors, a figure which probably includes no allies, who would hardly accompany him to Russia, and is eloquent of the magnitude of the task so gloriously achieved by John. He was slain next year by the Pechenegs, and never reached Kiev. John, having organized East Bulgaria as a province, returned to Constantinople, to celebrate a magnificent and well-merited triumph. Meanwhile, Scleros had dealt successfully with Phocas, who was captured and imprisoned at Chios, while his father, after another fruitless attempt at sedition, was blinded in earnest. In 972, a Saracen attack on Antioch was defeated by the patrician Nicolaus, and next year John took command in the east. He was, however, turned from his purpose by troubles with the Armenians, who now dreaded the heretic empire almost as much as the infidels. And on his return to Constantinople, the general Mle was attacked by a great levy from Mesopotamia, defeated and captured near Derbekir. Antioch and other places were lost. In 974, John again came eastward, captured Derbekir and Merfarkan, and pressed on down the Tigris against Baghdad. He did not take the decayed capital of the Abbasids. The terror inspired by his advance was so great that the caliph and his Buhawid mayor of the palace sued for peace, which was granted in return for a great subsidy and an annual tribute. John returned to winter in Armenia, 
and in the spring of 975 took the field once more. He marched by Diyarbekir and Merfarkan through Mesopotamia to Nisibis, which was found deserted, and thence turned back, sweeping the open country as far as Edessa, which paid tribute. Thence, crossing the Euphrates into Syria, he captured Membij, Apamea, Hems, and Baalbek, and besieged Damascus, which again ransomed itself to escape storm and pillage. John is said to have actually occupied Jerusalem, and to have sent presents thence to his friend Ashot of Taron, but this seems impossible. Had he taken the sacred city, we should have had some definite record of the event. From Damascus he forced his way through Lebanon to the Syrian coast, captured Beirut but failed to take Tripoli, and finally swept the coast to Antioch, which, as we have seen, had relapsed to the Mohammedans. It refused to surrender, and John left Burtzes to besiege it, and proceeded homewards. Burtzes captured it for the second time early in 976. The whole campaign had been very successful. The failure at Tripoli had been the only reverse. The plunder had been immense. The ransoms and tribute money alone amounted to three million nomismata. The emperor's health was, however, failing. He was only 51, but his whole life had been passed in the field. He proceeded slowly through Cilicia, intending to recruit himself at the capital, and near Anazarbus passed immense cattle ranches, which, upon inquiry, he was informed were the property of Basil Lecapenos, largely granted by himself and his predecessor. So, he remarked bitterly, I have slaved like a mercenary, and worn out my armies to enrich a greedy eunuch. The remark is said to have been reported to Lecapenos, and he proceeded to hasten the progress of disease by administering poison. The story has no certain foundation. John was very ill when he reached the capital, but the fatigue and exposure of a long campaign in Syria amply account for his death, which occurred on January 10, 976. End of section 15. Recording by Mike Botez.